Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is so good, Pretty Patel listens to it in secret. This is Last Week in Brexit. As always, I am joined by Alex Davis. Hello, Alex. Hiya. And Christian Spence. Hi, Jonathan. How are we? We're good, I think. Yeah, it's good. Uh, interesting news week. It yeah. has been. I mean, the big news, of course, is Alex has just got back from Rotterdam. That is huge uh, news. Uh, yeah, yeah. No scandals? No, no scandals whilst I was there now. It's a, it's a pretty nice place. Much more, well, well, more modern than you expect, I was going to say, but it's not because it was blown to smithereens. Yeah, it was pr- <laughs> so pretty it, much it, an island. It is, in, it is entirely yeah. modern. Um, but For, m- much bigger and nicer than I was expecting, certainly. Far less scandals then on this side, on, on this side of the channel. Yes. Yeah, but yes. yeah. Hasn't politics been interesting for the it past has. few days? And I wonder if that's one of the reasons that when I've come in today, you both seem rather deflated with things. Yeah. Particularly when the um, conversation turns politics. Well, it's it's an odd. I mean, you. We've been saying for a while politics is difficult and it's in an interesting space at the minute. Um, but I think that kind of the the kind of the three stories. I'm having ambling over to chat to uh, chat to our CEO yesterday afternoon. Say, can anyone remember a time when politics was in this? This level of a mess because we had essentially three major stories running yesterday. Um, the first one, which I guess we'll come we'll come back to later, which is that uh, uh, David Davis in a written ministerial statement uh, uses the line that I think it's as something along the lines of as this government has been keen to point out, the fifty-eight Brexit sectoral impact assessments do not technically exist. Now that's interesting. That let's, sounds... let's hold that thought. And we'll come back. And of course, we've we've got we've currently got. All of the UK news agencies literally live tracking a plane <laughs> back from Africa. I heard um, at last count there's 22,000 people tracking that plane. Yeah, I, I kind of think this is one of the problems with the UK media. You know, it's it finally latches onto a story and then just will not let go, even yeah. when there's actually nothing to report. Yeah. yeah, but Priya Patel is flying back from. Um, I think uh, she's landed now. Has she landed? She's yes, here. She's, Are she's, you tracking it too? Back at <laughs> <off, laughs> half past three. There we go. So she's <laughs> on her way to Theresa May for a dressing down because uh, 
it appears that she's done quite a lot of not telling the complete truth um, <laughs> to herself, to the Prime Minister, to the Foreign Secretary. Um, well, maybe and, to the Foreign Secretary, who knows? Yeah, and apparently to the, uh, to the Israeli government, as uh, she went on what must be one of the most boring holidays in the world, mm-hmm. where she went, on a, she went on a holiday to Israel and somehow managed to end up in a dozen meetings with the Israeli Prime Minister discussing, discussing whether the UK should fund the Israeli army into occupied territories. Um, so, As I understand it, wasn't it not... Um hospital in the occupied territories it's something it's all i mean it's, i tried really not to pay too much attention to the details she, tra- she traveled to a, a, a no-go zone didn't she basically that's it so these yeah. are areas that the uk doesn't even recognize as being israeli territories um right? yeah because we, we don't recognize the occupied zones um uh, as being israel so there's all that going on um and then the other bit because boris johnson's implicated in that but the other bit of course is uh, there's a uk citizen currently in prison in Iran. Um, she went out there on holiday, um, was arrested by the Iranian government um, on the basis of trying to propagate Western journalism uh, mm-hmm. into the country. Um, she's maintained very clearly, and her case statement is clear that she was not doing anything around. She was literally on holiday. Her employer uh, has also confirmed not only that she was, you know, she, A, she's on holiday, B, she's not doing any journalism work over there, and C, they actually have no um, stations or work in that country because of all the international embargoes. But Boris Johnson turned up to select committee and let drop in that and say, oh, yes, well, of course, she was out there teaching you know, journalism and everything to all the rest. So, so we ran and slapped was. another five-year jail sentence on her. Um, now, in any time previously, these, these two last things, and probably David Davis's, would have just resulted in instantaneous resignations or well, sacking. Do you know what? There is something um, quite interesting to this, and I was wondering... Theresa May is clearly not in a powerful position. No. I mean, no. She has very little influence. But does this somehow make her ministers more powerful? Is this in some way benefiting the guys I, I, running the departments? But no, I saw someone say that um, so many members of the cabinet should resign that none of them will resign. Yes. Basically. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it. You know, it's, I mean, we talked before in, you know, on the Brexit scenario that there is no government policy on Brexit. Yeah. That's clear because the Foreign Secretary and the Trade Secretary and the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have all got very different views about how it should all pan out. Um, this kind of stuff starts to suggest, is there any government policy at all? Mm. Because actually, Secretaries of State can go off and make their own things up as they go along. See, I always think... And there's no check from the centre. I always mm. think in these situations, the person with, act, with all the power isn't actually the Prime Minister. It's actually the Chancellor. I think at this stage, when you notice he's, he's kept himself out of a lot of this in the public eye, except for the Brexit stuff. He's keeping his powder dry. Um, I mean, there's a huge amount of pressure on him now. If, he, if, if the budget is anything uh, other than unbelievably exciting, mm. um, then I think he's going uh, to be seen as in a pretty weak position as well. Um, but he's got very little room for manoeuvre, fiscally, but we'll, we'll find that out two weeks today. Yeah. It must be very disconcerting for the EU when they look at, across the channel and they see the goings-on, with, particularly with the Cabinet. Because, from their point of view, wouldn't the worst thing be if Theresa May lost power or if a, if, if a general election was actually to take place? Um, I, I, I think you could say so, um, basically because they want this thing to be wrapped up. Um, yeah. Although, I think if something did happen, it would probably change the kind of Brexit outlook quite a bit. Uh, we, we know that the EU has told us multiple times that extending Article 50 is still on the table. I certainly would expect that if we end, we do end up going to a general election or something like that, that something we, we can't just continue on the on the current trajectory with the current timeline. You would you would imagine that something would would change. Do you think? And this is completely hypothetical. 
it is possible that if the, a new general election did come about, there would be a party running on rescinding Article 50. Yeah, absolutely. Well, all the Lib Dems would. Lib Dems certainly, yeah. without question. I don't think Labour can get themselves into that position, though, despite probably the fact that a majority of their benches would privately, if not publicly, support that as a mandate. Well, the, there's, an, there's an interesting element to this, isn't there? Because there was the debate yesterday on the on Article 127 and the EEA in Parliament. Yeah. Um, and the debate was led by Stephen Kinnock, MP. Mm-hmm. And I haven't... I, I Unfortunately, you know, doing this podcast right now, I haven't looked into the debate as much as I should have or read uh, as much as what was, what was said as I should have. The impression that I got was that there's quite a lot of Labour backbenchers who are warming increasingly towards EEA and EFTA as a solution to this. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And so it feels to me like if, if we did come to another general election, potentially Labour would position itself you know, on a very strict, soft Brexit and I think a lot of strategy. I think a lot of conservatives would probably go along with that as well. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the, the time is, if you know, there's been lots of chat over the past sort of few months around a, you know, is there the possibility of the emergence of a new centrist party, which essentially yeah. takes you know the right wing of Labour and the and the left wing of the Tories. I mean, you kind of think like there's no time. Never again in British politics are the stars aligned in such a way that this is the most opportune moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the conundrum they would have, and they being Labour, is their leadership has no interest in the EU. And not only do they have no interest, as in, you know, they don't want to be part of it, they have no interest, i.e., they've got bigger fish to fry. You know, they want to get on with redistribution of wealth and opening you know, uh, mm-hmm. national investment banks and, 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 and all the rest of it. The rest of their MPs want to desperately stay, stay in Europe, but a lot of their voters couldn't really give them monkeys. They either couldn't give them monkeys or, of course, you know, there's, there's quite a large large proportion of very pro-Brexit amongst amongst their, their, their more traditional voters. So it's a huge challenge and it's... Maybe, I think we've always maintained in this that mm-hmm. at some point this Labour fudge has to give. You know, the, Cor- Corbyn has managed to position the party since the, since the campaigns to the referendum that for the pro-Brexit side, he's seen as pro-Brexit, mm-hmm. and for the Leave side, he's seen as pro... Uh, sorry, for the Remain side, he's yeah. seen as pro-Remain. That can't go forever. No. Um, now, as long as they're in opposition, it probably can. Yeah, uh, because... Because for like, now, they can just fudge it. But if, if there is a general election before, before 2019, which I thought is increasingly probable... Um, then they're going to have to square that circle. But I also think if there is a general election, we'll have, I, I don't know how, how many months of, you know, election campaigning, um, new manifestos and things like that. I, I would think that there is enough time there and enough opportunity for things to change quite significantly, not just in terms of the politics that is on offer, but just in terms of the public's opinions on this stuff. I think... If a general election gets called and the subject of doing Brexit completely differently or potentially not doing it at all really, really comes back onto the table and there's lots of people really trying to make their case and, you know, it almost becomes... Yeah, you know, it's, it's all like a new referendum lingers in the air, essentially. I, I really think that there's a possibility that things might change. I mean, we've seen in a, in a lot of the polls coming out recently that people are increasingly in despair about how things are going. Even, yes, even yeah. lots of Leave voters think things are being mishandled. Many Leave voters are starting to perhaps say that maybe this is too complicated to do right now. I, I, well, I, just, I just think yeah. if, it, if it comes back in a big way, I, I think there is a chance that things could change quite drastically. That's interesting. So 
it, you know, when you say it's too complicated to do now, I, I always have an issue with this because if not now, well, when? I, I guess not now, but it's too complicated to do this way. I, I think. I think that's it, and that's why. And I, I kind of think the rescinding of Article Fifty still feels very unlikely. It's a. It's a. Can we have an extra? Yeah. Two, three, five years of the negotiating process. Can we push the deadline back? Because I think you've, you've got to. You've got to play to the fifty. Even the country's still split, basically fifty-fifty about whether leaving the EU is a good thing or not. Um, so you've somehow you've still got to cater to that fifty percent of the population. So you're still saying this is still happening. It's not that we're cancelling it. Yeah. Um, but we cannot. We just cannot do it this way. And of course, we've said since podcast one, you you just can't do it this way. <laughs> I think the, the main, you know the common thread between this podcast and podcast one is actually. The lack of clarity behind the reasoning, you know, the reasoning for ex- exiting the EU, other than to exit the EU. Yeah, yeah. exactly. No, so. no one's answered the why, other than it's a will of the people. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Now, some actual Brexit stuff. Uh, you alluded to it earlier on. We were talking about, uh, well, last week, how you'd go about building position papers, uh, and also the fifty was it eight? Fifty-eight, yeah, I think. Fifty-eight position papers, uh, which were constructed by Dexu. What's happened to these uh, position papers? Has anyone managed to read them yet? Um, well, it, nobody has managed to read them yet. Um, and I think the difference with how it now appears they've gone about it as the way we'd tackle it is we'd actually aim to, well, actually write them. Um, <laughs> because we have an astonishing written ministerial statement um, from David Davis, mentioned it earlier, which essentially says the problem is, you know, we can't get them out to you very quickly. If you remember, there was a big vote in Parliament. I think pretty much as we were recording last week, um, which they used an arcane bit of uh, parliamentary chicanery to essentially propose that there is a motion directly from the monarch um, that the Secretary of State makes available the papers to Parliament. Sorry, run the past me again, because these things do come about occasionally on this podcast where I've just never heard of it. I've never heard of the scenario previously. No, it's, it's a rarely, rarely used in modern times. Apparently it was quite regularly used in the 19th century. Um, I can't remember its, pro- its uh, proper title. But essentially a motion from Parliament which requests that the, that the head of state um, releases papers uh, in the public interest. So that's what Labour managed to get through last Wednesday, which essentially um, makes a matter of, uh, a matter of law, essentially. Not quite law, law's not the right word. But anyway, Parliament is legally required. No, the government is legally required to respond. Um, David Davis came back and said, "It'll. Uh, we take on board what you're saying, but there are things that might need to be redacted because of national security and it might jeopardise our deal making." As all if that national kind security of... regarding fishing. Yeah, exactly. Or, or muse- the impact of museums and galleries on the Brexit scenario. All of that. Anyway, long story short, he came and uh, he wrote a letter to the uh, chair of the Dexu Select Committee, which was issued again as a written ministerial statement yesterday which basically says, as government has been at pains to point out, although I'm not entirely sure it's taken an awful lot of pain to point this out, the 58 papers do not actually exist. That is staggering. So they've done work, there is analysis there, it's all been done, but it's not in a position that it's ready to be published, and they're not really 58 separate ones, and, you know, this this kind of... All of a sudden, all of a sudden I feel like I, de- I used to feel in my wasn't, first year at university. Wasn't, where, wasn't, <laughs> wasn't there a paper from Dexu a couple of weeks ago which said... They went into excruciating detail. Excruciating detail. Those are Davis's words well, himself. It certainly yeah. sounds excruciating. Yeah, um, that's it. But it does—it really does feel like that undergraduate sort of. Well, yes, I have done them, but you know, the dog ate some and yeah. some are on the bus. This, and this is what a lot of people were saying last week: is that maybe the reason they're not releasing these things is because 
some work has been done and they kind of know broadly but they haven't written them up into fancy papers with graphs and stuff I basically just that they're not in anywhere near a state ready to be they're released. not in the same body published and the other words we're hearing is probably is not is that actually they're there the content's there but it's actually it's not that good yeah it's not be, in terms of, yeah. of output for the UK and That's, what it might mean yeah. but actually just the quality of the work oh, is, really? yeah, is not yeah. that high so yeah. my theory on this because something you said earlier on I don't know if you meant you meant, you meant to quote it or not but you said technically don't exist and I start to think of Sir Humphrey in, in this point, which is, well, yes, of course, we do have the papers, but they don't really say what we want them to say. So maybe if they didn't exist, that would be better. I kind of think maybe that's what's going on here. Uh, who knows? I mean, and the question is, I don't know where we'll ever know. You know, the Davis has said within the next two to three weeks, that's what he thinks it'll take, that's the length of time it'll take his department to, uh, to get them all ready, working with other departments. I mean, what what is then handed over to the select committee in two or three weeks' time may be very, very different from what exists now. So I don't think we'll ever know. I don't think we'll ever know what's really gone on here. But the select committee will be getting unredacted copies. Now, um, the rest of us will probably see redacted ones, but, of course, the more people it goes to in its unredacted form, the greater the chance of a leak. Yes, exactly. Uh, now, um, this, this is certainly, well, almost certainly a question that you're not going to know, going to know the answer to, but I'll give it a go anyway. Um, when select committees request work from ministers from different departments, are there rules as to what should be handed over? Because what, what would make them have to hand over an unredacted copy? Why do they not redact it? How, how do they not know You're right, I don't know the answer um, in I, detail. I, I don't know what the rules are, but I guess yeah. with... with Things which are secret, they just have to submit a freedom of information, don't they, like everyone else? Um, no, because they can go beyond that. So you can have you know, highly secret availability. So when the CETA deal was being negotiated, yeah. ministers had to go into locked rooms um, ah. with you know, cop- one copy on the desk, no phones allowed in, all that kind of stuff. So that does happen for top wow. secret documents to make sure there's no, there's no leaking. So the committee could request that, mm. and I suspect the committee will probably get unedited copies. But whether they get the copies that have already been written or whether they get reworked copies that are edited and maybe have a sort of different story. Yeah. You know. Freedom of information is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because I, I, I saw some people on Twitter and I can't remember what the request was for. It was, it was Brexit-related, but everything that they got back was just blacked out. Yes. Like, it was a freedom of information request, but literally the entire A4 page had a black square on top of it, so you couldn't read anything. <laughs> I, like, I, don't, I don't quite understand how, what the rules what's, are. What's the point? Yeah, yeah. So, you, so you make the request, but there are, there are a number of exemptions in the, in the Freedom of Information Act. So, I, I imagine select committees have a, a lot more power than a simple freedom of uh, information Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do we know what, um, for instance, and this is just me being a little bit geeky now, do we know what the punishment is, or what sanctions can be taken against... Uh, departments who decide not to hand over the correct information. No idea. Absolutely no or idea. They just, or can they just get away with not doing it? Is it just poor form? Yeah, I've not, I've not a clue. You Actually. get shunned at the strangers bar or something. Yeah. I suspect there's lots of poor form going on. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> well. Uh, well, moving away from uh, De- from Dexu and their uh, non-existent papers, someone that does very much exist, Liam Fox. Uh, has come up with a statement regarding well, something which we find very important actually, uh, which is the rule, which is rules and rules and regulations. Can you just explain this a little bit as to what his statement may have meant? I I actually only know a specific snippet of it, which got picked out. I, what was the statement yeah, actually based on? Um, he was, I believe, he was speaking in front in front of Parliament, and yeah. he said something along the lines of. 
uh, he wants to uh, he, he wants to move away from the system of regulation and yeah, laws from yeah, the EU. Yeah, it, it was it, that we would prefer any an equivalence model to move towards an equivalence model That's, and away yes. from the EU's harmonisation model. Um, and it's not quite, it's not particularly clear what that means. But I, I think what it means is that instead of us in the future continuing to automatically align ourselves with the rules and regs of the single market for example mm-hmm. um, you know like Norway do so when the single market changes its rules and regs um, but they are basically once ratified they are automatically applied to EEA countries um, what he's suggesting is that we can instead set up a system of equivalence so that we can diverge our rules and regs away from those of the single market but a system is maintained which allows trade to continue as uh, as frictionlessly as possible. <laughs> uh, get my math around that. Um, which which is something we've talked about quite a lot before. Um, this whole idea of convergence versus divergence post Brexit, and it it seems to me like this is another have your cake and eat it type th- type ordeal uh, where where we want to do our own thing, but we don't want the the borders to be uh, to be have strict checks imposed. Well. It sounds perfectly reasonable what he's suggesting. It just doesn't sound perfectly practical. I, I, I don't see what the what the point would be. No, and, and that's it. I mean, I think this comes back to something we sort of dwelt on a bit more in the past sort of two, three weeks here, sort of thinking about this stuff. Is there's a huge challenge because most people in the UK and certainly probably most businesses actually, because so much of their trade or their own movement on holidays or whatever is is with Europe. They assume that the the way borders work between the UK and Europe is kind of the norm, mm. um, and it's not. It's really odd. Europe is a is a lone partner, uh, yeah, a lone state in the in the world in the way that it's developed a, a single market and a customs union and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so this is this idea that they say, oh well, we want frictionless borders because we've got those now, but we want to make our own regs or we want to have a you know a slightly looser relationship. Without kind of getting the, to the core point, which is, it's not having a loose relationship with Europe. It's having an incredibly tight relationship with Europe, which enables the frictionless border. Yes. They are two sides of the same coin. You can't say you want a frictionless border and a divergence. It just cannot happen in any legal state. Um, the EU will defend its, the integrity of its single market to its own death, I suspect, <laughs> quite honestly. Um, and it has international obligations as well, which you know, which means it has to do that. So, the you know the challenge is essentially, as soon as we start to allow you know agriculture, foodstuffs, or uh, anything else into the UK, which doesn't meet EU regs, that's the point at which the border starts to get tighter, because essentially the EU has to guarantee that those products which don't meet their regulations are not coming over their border and into Europe. You can't use us as a as a backdoor. Yeah, uh, into the EU, and that's the challenge. And it just, it just feels like still, you know, eighteen months into this, and for people like David Dose and Liam Fox, thirty years into their crusade against the EU, they've still not got this unbelievably simple concept. Yeah, it's it's totally unclear whether Liam Fox made that point very specifically and was mm. briefed and said use these words before, or whether he just doesn't quite have a grasp. At, at the moment, see this is this is the part which I have an issue with. Yeah, I just can't imagine either of these gen- gentlemen don't have a grasp on it. I, I simply, I simply can't come to that conclusion. I know, I know what you mean. And the, the person I've most have had this kind of sort of issue with recently is 
conveniently his name has immediately fallen out of my head as soon as I need to say it. Um, Redwood, John Redwood. Yeah, yes, there's no way he does not know. You know John Redwood He's is, you know, by virtue of his history, of I've seen you know, his speeches when he was mm-hmm. a, a minister himself, in his business career previously, uh, in the writings, you know, whether you agree with his positions on things, you know, he's clearly an intelligent man. Yeah. And same with Rhys Mogg, same with Hanan. But what you find on this, what you find when you start getting into the detailed Brexit with them is they are just, they're either, they either know they're lying or they're being willfully stupid. Because there's no way that someone of that intellectual calibre is making these mistakes repeatedly, despite having been really clearly corrected and pointed to the, pointed directly to the body of evidence, which proves that what they're saying is not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know. You know, it's it's about how, it's, it's the whole thing, isn't it? How do you have an intellectual debate with someone who's willfully thick? But the thing, is, <laughs> yeah, or yeah, being a dishonest actor. Yeah, because you just can't make progress. Yeah, sorry, Alec. I, I, I was going to say, you, you, you think that these like they must have a grasp on this stuff, right? But I mean, it is complicated stuff. And for example, there was a BBC reality check um, this week. Talking specifically about the whole John Redwood thing, you know, mm. we, we we can revert to WTO terms because we trade with the rest of the world on WTO terms. The rest of the world trades on those terms. Blah 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 blah. And the BBC did a reality check thing, which is meant to be where their researchers go away and come back with you know falsifications or myth busting. And they came back to say that the, we the EU currently has trade deals with I think 68 countries now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are 24 countries with which the EU trades on WTO WTO terms. And these include, and it said the USA and China, um, you know, and all the usual examples. And that's not true. And so lots of people sent some things to the BBC saying that's not cr- that's not correct um, because we do have multiple trade deals with America, for example. I actually think if you stack up the bi- the bilaterals and multilaterals between the EU and the USA, they outnumber the sec- the the, pers- the country in second position by by double. I think the, we have lots of agreements with the USA. And so it's not true that we, we trade with those under WTO terms. And so they issued a uh, redaction and a change to the reality check verdict, which then just said, in terms of tariffs, we trade with tw- 24 countries under WTO terms. And again, you, that's technically correct, but it's kind of missing the point. Because exactly. if, you're, if, if you're looking to bust the myth that like, pe- people like John Redwood are, yeah. are peddling... That's not how to do it, because that's technically true, but that leads people to believe that we don't need trade deals with those places in order for things to stay, stay as they are. And it, it, so it's, it's kind of... They've kind of done the myth-busting, but they've totally missed the point in doing it. And so if the BBC and its team of researchers can be doing stuff like that still, maybe, maybe, maybe people like John Redwood still have got this wrong. Yeah. Um, give me your version. Give me your best version, your most sincere version. John Redwood's argument that he would be happy with and you and you could live with. What, summarise what his argument is, essentially. Yeah, but in a way that, you, I mean, I, I simply don't believe everything that he says is false. So give, give me a version of well, it. It's, it's the ch- the challenge, the, you're, you're right, the challenge is not that, it, not that everything he says is false, but it's not a complete picture. And yeah, that, yeah. I think w- one it. of the podcasts we've done before kind of dives into this in, in a lot of detail where we talk about Actually, it's because this is an incredibly complex area, incredibly mm-hmm. complex area of which, you know, not sorry, been denigrating, and I include myself in this. You know, ninety-nine percent of the country know less than three-fifths of nothing about this topic, and despite, you know, I think both probably Alex and I would admit, having done this for eighteen months in detail, we've still barely scraped the surface. No. 
of the kind of specialist knowledge that this required. But Redwood's point is, is kind of twofold. One is the rest of the world trade, most of the rest of the world trades with most of the rest of the world on WTO terms, mm-hmm. which in terms of preferential trade agreements is correct. Most of the world, I'd say most of the world, what shares, but you know, the, U, the EU trades with the US without a preferential trade agreement. That is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, he also says that because they, the EU has a trade deficit, we have a trade deficit with the EU, we don't need to worry because they wouldn't want to impose tariffs on us anyway um, because they would be hurt, their consumers would be hurt more than our producers because mm-hmm. they buy more from us uh, than we buy from them. Which, well, it's, te- it's, the, it's true that we run a trade deficit, but phrases like they wouldn't want to impose tariffs. Well, the point is, the, EU, the UK walking out of the EU leaves the EU with no choice under international law but to impose its common external tariff on the UK. Um, it must do so as part to keep its definition of a customs union intact at a global regulation level. Mm-hmm. It is also required to do it as under part of its WTO terms and the most favoured nation. So the EU is not choosing to do anything. And this is actually kind of a crucial bit for me, which the UK negotiating side misses. It's the UK has chosen to leave. And that's the EU's position in all of this. You know, the EU is not imposing anything on the UK. Those very carefully worded statements of Michel Barnier, which said the UK has, as its sovereign right, decided to leave the UK, uh, and we will not stand in the way of, to leave the EU, and we will not stand in the way of it. Now that has implications. Without a trade deal, a preferential free trade agreement in place, the EU will have to impose its common external tariff on the UK. It has absolutely no choice. It would throw so many agree- um, defaults would be thrown up by WTO members if it didn't. It would mm-hmm. just be carnage. So those things that he says aren't necessarily untrue, but they're not they're the complete picture. So the WTO, the US trades with the EU without a preferential trade deal, correct. But it does use 60-odd bilateral, maybe more actually. 124. 124 and bilateral just agreements. Narrow, narrow areas of industry. So yeah, so trade facilitation, or, yeah. or trade facilitation, or customs uh, agreements, custom facilitation agreements, or mutual recognition yep. uh, for certain aspects. But that's 64 different bilaterals with one country. Yeah. And I think, isn't it? Yeah, you, I've just seen you googling a country, and that was the other thing I was gonna, yeah, <laughs> gonna come to next. In all yeah, of this. I, I just it made me think of a blog post which I read. So. Um, we've said before there are multiple types of trade agreements there are preferential trade agreements there are regional trade agreements there are individual bilaterals on specific product sectors blah 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 all of them have to be registered with the WTO so you can go onto the WTO website um, and you can actually bring up a map of you know you can put in EU uh, you can put in regional trade agreements and it'll show you a map with lines going to all the countries with which the EU has regional trade agreements you can do this to for every country that is a member of the WTO in its own right um, and so uh, a guy wrote some computer code which would go through the WTO website for every member uh, and scrape all their, their trade deals that they had to find if any countries around the world traded just on WTO terms which is kind of what is implied by the things that Redwood and Reese Mogg yeah. say and it turns out that there is one country um, there is one country in the world which trades solely on WTO oh. terms and has no deals whatsoever and it is the Islamic Republic of Mauritania oh wow yeah um, I'll just, just quickly Wikipedia-ing it while yep. Christian GDP so, GDP's at about what was it say 5 billion 
Five billion, so about one tenth the size of Greater Manchester. Yes, and four yeah. four percent of the population are slaves. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, is there? I, see, I think the valid point in the Redwood Hanan reeks among argument, right? Is if if the regulation of selling soap is that intense, hmm. is, is it really something that we need to be indulging in? And I think that's kind of the angle that the I mean, it's it's a it's it's a broad it's a it's a rather broader point which isn't, hasn't really caught much traction. But that's what I, I would say that say that they're talking about. Um, you know, just the reinstitution of free trade in you know the, the true sense of the word. Yeah, I, I think we've been over this loads of times, but it's it's just it, it strikes me as just kind of like an old-fashioned view of, of trade. Mm. I mean, because if if these regulations are so unnecessary and it'd be so much cheaper to do trade without them, then they wouldn't be there, or we just trade with places where they don't exist. You know, wow. you know, the benefits that they bring in terms of making trade easier must outweigh the cost of them in terms of you know the financial costs. Yeah. Cost and, and, we, and we keep coming back to the point. You know, we talk. You know, tariffs are important, but they're increasingly less important. Yes, you it's know, the WTO like the... rounds, the Doha rounds. You know, are removing tariffs rapidly. So um, I, I just I do wonder if it would be worth doing the Doha rounds and all the rest of it. To, to remove regulation rather than to remove tariffs. I mean, that, 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 that would be my, that my personal... Well, and, and that's partly where it's going. And actually, this is what the EU is seen as the absolute global leader in doing. It's alignment of regulation. Alignment that's, isn't the same as reduction, though. No, that's, that's quite it. important. No, it's, well, it, it may be important, it may not. It'll mm. be important in some areas, it'll be important to you in ways it's not mm-hmm. important to me, and vice versa, and cross-sector and cross-country. Um, but the thing which allows trade to happen really easily... Is alignment. It's, it was, you know, you have it. I think it's one of the very first slides you did for the Brexit presentations yeah. before. If you're not talking regulation, you're not talking trade. That is, you know, this world of finished manufactured goods popping out of a factory in country A and going to fa- going to country B is a tiny, tiny share of global trade now, and particularly in the way that the UK sits within the EU. We don't make finished goods and send them to the EU. Yeah. We do a bit, send them to somebody else. They do a bit, bits come back. You, you can't have any customs checks in the middle of those because it disrupts the whole concept of just-in-time manufacturing and it goes against why those supply chains have emerged where they are. So if you want that to be frictionless, you've got to agree the same regulation. Well, uh, talking about ag- agreeing things, I do believe uh, some news... Well, it's something that you posted, Alex, that the citizens' rights stuff, which we thought was agreed has now not been agreed or been unagreed yes. if, 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 if there is such a thing um, the bill seems to be more or less agreed at about 60 billion uh, but trade talks will not, will not start now they don't think until January is that, is that correct? Is that, is that the timetable that we're looking at? Um, this was a, a thread which was posted by a guy called Jonathan Liss mm-hmm. or, That's right. uh, he works for British Influence um, and it, it was quite a scary thread and lots of people have come back and said you know we're not quite sure that things are this bad but essentially he's been over to Brussels and has, has given us a view from Brussels um, and the reason he was so pessimistic was that primarily because there seems to be a level of optimism here that talks will move on to trade in December and apparently there is no optimism for that on the other side and that they, they, they don't expect that we'll move on to trade talks until you know at least, at least Q1 next year but that gives us potentially only seven or eight months to do everything, you know, in terms of trade, which would be a, ma- a massive, massive problem. It's not possible. They basically just say it's not possible. Um, so there's much less confidence on the other side. And it is down to things like 
again, the citizens' rights. Um, there was a new paper published on citizens' rights this week, which just before I came over to, here to do the podcast, uh, a uh, the, the EU Parliament sent a response back saying, again, it's not good enough. Uh, that was led up by Guy Verhofstadt again. Um, again, out- outlining a number of areas where we're, we're closer, but we're not. We're still far away, kind of thing. Saying that not, not enough progress has been made. And then the other one was on the divorce bill, um, where I, I, th- I think the number is, has been broadly agreed, mm. that it's about 60 billion. I just don't think the EU has got what it wants in terms of our specific commitments and the methodology by which this will be paid. Well, there's no methodology, is there? I well, mean, I, I think currently we've just plucked a number out of uh, a number out of the air. We keep increasing it in the hope it'll help move forward. But it's <laughs> not ten billion more. It, I mean, it, I, it, it doesn't really appear to. Yeah, we talked about this before. This is not, from I, our point of view, what the EU is looking for. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I do wonder if the methodology has been agreed on the British side, and, and the and the number is so vast that we just keep on throwing out you know an extra ten billion until they uh, agree with it. Yeah, I don't know, but th- this thread was. It, it didn't make things sound great. Uh, he ended on, you know, what he said was the good news was that apparently it's been constantly reiterated over there that we can extend Article 50 if we want to. And that was his particular position, is that that's the only way that we get out of this. Um, at this point anyway, is that we extend Article 50 by, you know, two or three years to give us more time to figure out how to do it. Um, and that, that was his piece of good news on the end. But then there were, there were lots of people coming back and saying, you know, we're, we're so critical of... On, on our side of this idea that a narrative is being spun uh, you know, over and above what actually might be going on. Um, so a narrative is being spun you know, around our negotiating tactics. Mm. You know, we're saying one thing while, whilst we're obviously meaning, meaning another. And that maybe people are being a little bit too uncritical of the other side and that maybe the EU are also spinning a narrative. I completely agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a difficult one. I mean, a journalist can I, present it, things however he wants, I yes, suppose. Yes, and it but. depends on you know, the, um, the position of of, of the journalists too, but I, I do think that the big advantage that the EU has is it's simply unaccountable. One of the reasons that you know Britain votes voted to leave is because it's unaccountable, and one of the reasons it's so hard to negotiate with is because it's unaccountable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that all that all that all stacks up rather nicely. Um, is there anything else you gents want to talk about regarding? This week, I'm not sure not there is this week because it's uh, the, the Brexit. I mean, we'd, we've got you know, we'll have, we'll, we know we'll have stuff to talk about because the next round of negotiations with the EU starts tomorrow. Um, so we know we'll have. And there are only two days. It's only two days. Don't know why. Why? But um, I mean, this, this is this is something where I think the EU's dragging its feet because apparently, and it is only apparently, I've not seen a formal document from the UK government. Yeah. But apparently, we're saying, look, why can't we move into continuous talks? I think that's a very good question, that is a good which question. the EU hasn't really answered yet. Um, so I don't understand it. You know, this is apparently the most critical thing for both parties, but we're messing around meeting up for you know two afternoons once every five weeks. I to guess it's probably um, the work time directive. <laughs> so I don't know. So we'll know more next week. But no, for the minute, it's all a bit it's all a bit quiet unless you're desperate to know what's happening to the Secretary of State for the Department for International uh, Development. Um, yeah. Is anyone on, on the news? Do we know? I, well, I have Twitter open in front of me, but I've not. There's nothing on this screen, and I kind of fear that. Feel so that it could, once it happens, there could, be, there could be lots to talk about on the next podcast. Yes, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, the general election will have kicked off by now. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? Yes. Right. Well, um, let's wrap. Let's wrap this up then. Um, is there anything going on in the uh, Chamber of Commerce this okay. week? I would, I would have thought so. There usually is, but I'm just knee, knee deep, <laughs> knee deep in lots of research work at the minute. <laughs> uh, and if you want to find you, you guys on Twitter, where do we go? Our usual place for me at GMCC underscore Christian. I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And if for whatever reason you'd ever want to get hold of me. 
it's at Jay Beardmore. So uh, in a week where um, everyone is talking about tax avoidance, just remember Bulgaria has a flat rate of ten of of ten percent. I shall leave you leave you with that thought, and until next week, goodbye. Flat rate of ten percent. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.